0: Good morning. Uh, as many of you know, uh, and those that don't, we are currently in a, uh, kind of our summer series. We're finishing it up soon where we each week are looking at a different psalm. And the psalms were known in the Old Testament as uh, the, the hymn book of God's people, and they were used in, in corporate worship. So, because of that, we've done two things all summer. The first is at the end of the sermon, after we've studied the psalm together, uh, we've all stood up and we've recited the psalm together out loud. We're going to do that again today. And the second thing we've done uh, every Sunday is that we've had an artist from our congregation uh, do an interpretation of the psalm to music. Um, so after the sermon, that will also happen. Angie has uh, written a, a song based on this psalm that we will uh, will hear. Uh, last year, uh, because of a, of a podcast of all things, uh, my wife and I reread the Harry Potter series as adults. Um, and I, I don't know if it's a nostalgia thing uh, or if they're actually that good, but man, I found myself like weeping like <laughs> throughout every book. They're really, really good. Um, there's this really poignant moment, though, in the Sorcerer's Stone. This is not really a spoiler since it's the first book and it came out in 94, um, where Harry is, is uh, you know, he's an orphan kid. His parents were killed when he was a baby. He doesn't really know why until he's 10 years old, and he's at the school. He has no parents, and he's out one night, uh, kind of on one of his nightly escapades, and he stumbles into a room, and in the room is a mirror, and he walks in. It's called the Mirror of Erised, and he walks in, and he, he looks into this mirror, and he sees a reflection of not just himself, but him and his parents. This is kind of an artist's rendition of it. Uh, it's Harry looks, and he sees his parents there, and he said that night, uh, he, don't, he doesn't know how long he stood in front of the mirror looking at the parents that he never got to meet. So he goes back finally, he said the night passed uh, like it was nothing, and he goes back and he tells his best friend Ron, he says, Ron, you've got to come see my parents so in this mirror. I saw my parents, it's amazing, you've got to come see them. So that night, they sneak out and, and Ron comes with him to the mirror and Harry kind of opens the door and they're, they're sitting there and... He's got this look on his face. He's excited. Ron's going to finally see his parents like he did. And Ron walks up and you see he's kind of curious and then his face transfixed. And Harry says, what do you think? And Ron says, I don't see your parents. What are you talking about? And then Harry's like, what do you see? And Ron says, well, I see myself with, you know, the, the Quidditch cup and uh, everyone is shouting my name and I, I'm a champion. And they're saying, Ron, Ron, Ron. And, Harry's like, move, and pushes him aside, and he looks, and it's his parents. He's like, what are you talking about? And they both kind of stay there, they leave, and the next night, Harry goes back, and he looks, and his parents are there again, and finally, the headmaster, Dumbledore, comes, and he walks in, and they have this exchange that's really beautiful. Um, Dumbledore asks him uh, what he thinks the mirror shows. Dumbledore asks Harry, what do you think the mirror shows? And this is a quote from the book. He says this. Harry thought, then he said slowly, it shows us what we want, whatever we want. Yes and no, said Dumbledore quietly. It shows us nothing more or less than the deepest, most desperate desire of our hearts. You, who have never known your family, you see them standing around you. Ron Weasley, who's always been overshadowed by his brothers, sees himself standing alone, the best of all of them. However, this mirror will give us neither knowledge or truth. Men have wasted away before it, entranced by what they have seen, or been driven mad, not knowing if what it shows is real or even possible. The mirror showed the deepest desires of the heart of whoever looked into it. It showed what that person values the most, what's most important to them. Here's what I want to do this morning, together. I want us to look into the proverbial mirror of said together. I want us to look in that mirror and I want us to evaluate just what is it that each of us ascribe the most value to? What is the deepest desire of our heart? If we looked into that mirror, what would we see? Here's the truth. And this is what we're going to get at today. The most important thing. Whatever it is... That is what we worship. Now, as Christians, our answer should be that we look in the mirror and we see, perhaps, us with Christ, right? Maybe enjoying Him in the fullness and the restoration of all things. Maybe perfectly content with Him. Maybe even with God's people enjoying Him together. But as I examine my heart this week, I realize that's probably not what I would see if I looked into the mirror of said, If I'm honest, I... Th- this feels, um, this feels dirty to say to you guys. I think my mirror would look more like Ron's, wanting to be great. Or it could like, uh, maybe look like me, perfectly at ease, maybe like, on, like, um, like uh, maybe on the beach or something. No responsibilities, no cares in the world, you know? Worship, that's what we're talking about here is Worship. Keller has a great uh, kind of definition uh, of worship. uh, He says this, It's the act of ascribing ultimate value to something where it engages our entire being. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something. So the question before us is, What do we ascribe ultimate value to? We, as humans, the way we were created, we are worshipful beings. And we need to realize that uh, that's not just a Christian thing, that's a human thing. We ascribe ultimate value to something, and that guides how we live our lives. But this means something maybe especially important for us as Christians. We do believe there is a right way to worship in life, and there's a wrong way. Either we worship correctly... And our lives are ordered accordingly or we worship incorrectly and our lives are now distorted. We don't do this well often, like I mentioned. We ascribe ultimate value to plenty of things. Success is where we put our value. Our spouse is where we put our ultimate value. Our children is where we put our ultimate value. Money, autonomy, individualism. Here's a good barometer that I had to think through really difficultly this week. Is When you make decisions from small to big to ordinary to life-changing, what's the thing that drives that decision typically? That's where we put our ultimate value. And this morning we're going to see that Psalm 100 shows us That this worship piece, this idea of worship, it's actually something that's holistic for life. Uh, It's an everyday orientation and action that we take as Christians. It's not just when we're here at church, it's not just when we're reading the Bible, it's all of life. And this uh, this morning we're going to see three reasons why we must begin to see worship in this way. First, Christ lays claim to the whole world. Second, Christ lays claim to us, to me and to you. And third, Christ lays claim to eternity. So third, uh, Christ lays claim to the whole world. When we, when we think about worship, and I know that I do this too, and I I don't know if you're like me, but the, the first thing that our minds go to is is this, right? Together, singing together, coming to church. Maybe if you think about uh, spending time in the Bible in your quiet time or prayer, that you would consider worship too. Um, but we we typically don't get broader than that, right? But this psalm, I think, uh, broadens what we typically think about as worship. It's not less than those things, but it's certainly more. And it shows us this right out the gate, because verse 1 says this. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Now, this could just seem like a normal opening to the psalm, but uh, he's actually doing something really purposeful here, saying all the earth. He doesn't say, make a joyful noise, God's people, or make a joyful noise, people. While you're reading your Bible or in the comfort of your home, he says, make a joyful noise, all the earth. The psalmist wants to widen our perspective on how we view the scope and the glory of God. And we don't just see it in the first verse. Later in the psalm, the writer refers to God as good. uh, And he does this purposefully because he wants us, the reader, and also um, the Israelites who are reading this first, he wants to draw their eyes and their minds back to Genesis 1, where God created everything and called it good. All the earth frames this psalm to remind us that it's not just God's people who are called to ascribe ultimate value to him, but all of creation is a picture of God's value, his goodness, his worth, his beauty, and he wants to link the goodness of God to, to it. So Psalm 19 reminds us this well uh, when it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, right? Worship is creation-wide for all the earth. And then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. And the word serve here in Hebrew, it, it actually doesn't mean serve only. In, in other places it's translated work. In other places it's, it's translated worship and this word abad in Hebrew is typically used in context of servants and, and workers that pledge allegiance and loyalty to a king. And they live their life in service, and their ultimate value is serving the king. This is why it's translated worship other places. And I, I think this is why this psalm is actually all about worship. Serve the Lord, worship the Lord with gladness in all the earth is what it's saying. Um, one thing that I'm, and, um, perhaps my friends, but more than anyone, my wife can attest to this, one thing that I'm really bad about is, is compartmentalization, right? Um, I, I guess I'm not actually bad. I'm actually really gifted in it. Um, <laughs> it's something that I'm really good at. Uh, I have these friends that I put here. I have these I put here. I have family here, wife here, work job here. Uh, I put these feelings here and we don't do anything with those and these here, um, I'm fully content to to leave all of these different compartments uh, in different parts of my brain and my heart. I think that gives me a real sense of safety and control that is certainly a false. Um, Here's the tough thing, though. And this is the low-hanging fruit with this psalm, is um, we think we compartmentalize worship, right? We say worship is when we are at church. Worship's only when we pray, but the whole point is that worship's all of life. Uh... But I actually think uh, the problem is not compartmentalizing our spiritual life. We think that's the problem. The problem, though, is actually this. We don't compartmentalize worship because we can't do that. We are always worshiping something. We are always ascribing ultimate value to something. We are always oriented towards something. Some kind of goal that we are seeking after that's the most important to us and it dictates our life. We can't compartmentalize worship because we're always worshiping. And what we worship orders our life. And what we're going to see is if we worship anything other than Jesus Christ, our life will be disordered. So how does it get ordered and disordered? Well, I think we need to ask ourselves some questions. Students, this morning, some of you college students had your first day of class last week. Some of you high schoolers and middle schoolers did too. Some have it this week. When you walk into your first class, what are you ascribing ultimate value to? Is it being liked? Is it making the best grades? Is it being the funniest? Is it being lazy? What would it look like for you students to ascribe ultimate value to King Jesus first through your time in school? And how would that change the way you interact with your teachers and your professors and your your fellow students? How about when you walk into work tomorrow? Tomorrow? Where's your heart oriented? Is it strategically playing your cards so you can get ahead? Is it making as much money as possible? What would it look like for your job to be an avenue through which you ascribe value to King Jesus first? What about this afternoon when you go home with your family? What are you worshiping? Is it being the better father or mother than your spouse? So you can say to yourself, look how much I've done. Is it control so much that you lash out and anger at your children or try to make them do exactly what you want them to do at all times or respond or behave how you want them to? What would it look like for you to begin to look at your role in your family as an avenue through which you ascribe ultimate value to King Jesus first? You see, doing well in school, getting ahead at your job, being a good father and mother, all of these things are good things. They're not bad. But if they are where we are finding and putting our ultimate value, they will never fulfill what we are looking for. They will fail us because they are cheap gods. And our task is to, in every sphere, this is the all the earth piece, in every sphere sphere of our life to orient our hearts on King Jesus first. Ascribing worth and value to him. Because then we will begin to find what we are looking for. And then all of those other things, home, school, work, they will feel more ordered in a different way. In a healthier way. And this means that the drudgery of school maybe will begin to make sense. And the listlessness and purposelessness that you feel at times at your job will begin to make sense. And uh, the heartache and the difficulty of family can maybe perhaps make sense. But it only will when we begin to orient our hearts towards him. And this brings us to our second point. So we've seen that worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value. And so that uh, we must worship Him in every sphere of our life. And that's because he lays claim to all the earth. Now we're going to see that he lays claim to us. To me and to you. Verse 2 says that know that the Lord he is God. Now this is kind of like a... Uh, clunky kind of way to say it. Know that the Lord, he is God. And it's even odd in Hebrew. It repeats itself. It says, uh, know that Yahweh is Elohim. So it it uses the uh, divine name and also the kind of common parlance for God, Elohim. And it uses two different names for God. He does it for a reason. Anytime the Bible repeats itself, uh, says something twice in the Old or New Testament, uh, they're doing it for emphasis. It's almost like highlighting something hitting bold and underline, and then maybe like bumping up the font a couple of times. That is what he's doing by repeating God here. He's highlighting the sovereignty of God, saying that the God that we serve is all powerful. He is the great I am, and there's no other gods like him. And this is so important, because it reminds us that worship begins and ends with the creator God, who's sovereign over all the world. But the fact that he says that we can know this God would have been radical. And that ancient Near East kind of um, setting, personal gods were not a thing. And and if you did know a God, it was typically Pharaoh or or someone that uh, was a human that they said was divine. But here he's saying, Yahweh, the great I am, is knowable. And he doesn't just stop at knowledge, though. In verse 3, it says, It is he who made us, and we are his. And this idea that uh, we are not our own. And I think often the main reason we fail in this calling to worship in every sphere of life is uh, actually what he's talking about right here: is because we do think we are our own. The things we ascribe ultimate value to often is our own needs, our own desires, what's going to benefit us the best. But this psalm reminds us that we are not our own. It says we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Using that shepherd imagery that we've used a couple of times over uh, these past few weeks, um, it really reminds us that we won't know who we are until we know whose we are and that knowledge of him. So who are we? We are a people who have a relationship with the king of the universe, And that's why in verse 4 he says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, give thanks to him, bless his name. The psalmist knows that this knowledge of God, who he is, changes the way we live. It gives us access to him, enter his gates, his courts. It says, uh, be marked by thanksgiving, praise, and, and blessing his name, bringing glory to his name. Knowing whose we are dictates who we are. And from that, we know how to live. And I think this is why the knowledge piece is so important. The, the word know there in the Hebrew is, is this super intimate knowledge. It's a relational know. It's not an intellectual know. The nuance of it is so much more personal that the great I am has allowed us to know him on an intimate relational level. But there's one specific piece about this God that we know that I think we need to be restored in. And it's this. It's his beauty and worth. I think, um, and maybe I'm speaking for myself here, but I've gotten so used to the fact that I'm a Christian or that I'm in relationship with God um, or even that Jesus died for me that um, I've lost a little bit of his beauty And how wonderful and marvelous that fact is. Often um, my relationship with him can seem like an afterthought rather than the thing that I ascribe the most value to. But Jesus does lay claim to me. And he lays claim to you. And when we realize that and we realize how beautiful that knowledge that we have of him is it's life changing. And we don't miss out on what we have this week i um i saw a video about a guy he he was an army veteran he was overseas in germany um and during during world war ii and um and uh while he was over there his sergeant at the time told him hey the best watches in the world are over here the rolexes buy a rolex and uh so he bought one, not really thinking about it, he was, he was heading home to the States. He said he spent $120 on it, which was like about a month's wage, that's a lot of money. He, was, he made about $100 a week, and um, he bought one, and, and he, he kept it, and he brought it to this antique roadshow, right? And so uh, he's sitting there with the host, I recognized the guy, y'all probably would too, that I can't know his name, I don't know his name or anything, but um, the host begins to tell the owner of the watch about his watch. Apparently, it was the first edition of that specific model of Rolex that was ever made. Um, and though the bracelet had been replaced, he actually kept the original bracelet, which is very rare. It was dated the same week that the watch was uh, made. Uh, he said, it's amazing you kept the box and all the original paperwork because all that's super rare. And then when he asked why he kept all that, the guy kind of just shrugged and said, I don't really know why he kept it, but I did. But it was cool because as you were, I was watching this video, and you can find it online, but uh, you started to see the owner of the watch, new wonder, kind of start to come on his face as he understood how valuable this watch was, and he didn't even know. And, uh, you know, the host looks at him and says this at the end of the video. He says, this watch is extremely valuable. It would be worth today by itself, in any condition, around $35,000 at auction, just straight up. And the camera pans to this older man, and he's sitting there, and he kind of goes, whoa, like his eyes get a little big. He puts his head down. He goes, whoa, and then um, the host continues, and he says, but because you have the original paperwork, because you have the receipt, what you have on your hands is worth sixty-five dollars to $75,000. And the owner puts his head in his hands and says, Wow, I had no idea. I'm speechless. Had you have told me this would have been $1,500 that it was worth, I would have been happy. Had you told me it was worth $1,500, I would have been happy. But $65,000... That's life-changing. He had no idea what he had. And when he realized he was speechless, uh, I I didn't say that, well, I guess I kind of mentioned it, Um, you know, since he's, uh, he bought this, you know, at the war and things, he he wasn't necessarily young. Um, And think about this, he lived the majority of the latter half of his life without knowing what he had. The value of what he had. And My hope for us is that we don't, do the same. My hope for us is that we don't miss the value, the beauty of what we have, that the King of all the earth, Jesus Christ, lays claim to us. I don't want us to live our lives and be coming to the end of it and miss out on the vast riches that we have in Christ Jesus. The hope that He brings, the love that He lavishes on us, the blessings He provides, the freedom He offers, has it become stale to us? Do we miss the beauty of that? So, why is it beautiful? Well, have you ever considered how radical it is that throughout Scripture we are called God's people? That He claims us? If we don't find that radical, we're missing something. We're missing the gospel. Because the truth is, we don't deserve to be called God's people. We don't deserve to be claimed by him. And the reason we don't deserve that is because we refuse and daily still do refuse to claim him ourselves. We refuse to submit our lives to him and we choose the way of sin over the way of Jesus time and time again. And yet he still does claim us and he still does claim you. Nothing could stop him from claiming us. There was no person, no sin, there was nothing that could keep Jesus Christ from calling you his own. Even to the point of death and death on a cross. This is why we worship. This is why we ascribe ultimate value to him. Because there was nothing in the world that would have kept him from paying the ultimate price to call you his own. The word uh, worship comes from the old English word worth and ship. And the idea is that we give worth to something so much so that we live our life in accordance to it. This is the gospel. We give worth to Jesus who came, lived, and died so that we could live and live accordance to His will and His way for us. So I think... um, the heart of this for, uh, for me as I've been thinking through it this week and hopefully for you is surrender. Are you surrendering your everyday to Him? Your hurts, your struggles, your frustrations and your anxieties, do they rule you? Or are you allowing Jesus Christ who lays claim over you rule? Are you allowing your will and your desires, your priorities, your life decisions be the thing that guide you? Or are you surrendering them to the feet of Jesus Christ? I think these are the questions we need to answer. Because um, if Jesus is truly the desire of our hearts, if he really is where we are oriented, then what he says about us matters so much more, infinitely more than what we say about ourselves. The lies that we tell ourselves. What Jesus says is about us is so much more important. What he wants for us matters so much more than what we want for ourselves. If he's truly the desire of our hearts, then his claim over our life matters infinitely more than our claim over our own. So will you surrender to that claim over you? And if you do, maybe we will begin to understand what worship means and the beauty and the value that we have in him. We will begin to know whose we are. And in doing so, we'll find out who we're called to be. So we've seen that worship is ascribing ultimate value to him. Uh, and we do it because he lays claim to the earth. He lays claim to me and to you. And we're going to say see that he lays claim to all of eternity. So maybe more than the fact that uh, Jesus lays claim to all the earth, maybe even more than the fact that he lays claim to me and you, the fact that he lays claim to eternity is perhaps the biggest reason why We worship him. And the reason is is because me and you and all of creation are bound for eternity. Our eternal destiny was up to us. We would all be destined for hell because of our sin. But because and only because Jesus lays claim to eternity, our destiny is bound up with him. With his love. Where we will one day dwell with him forever if we have faith in him. Verse 5, because of this, is is one of the most hopeful verses in the whole Bible. He says, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all the generations. The psalmist calls the Lord good. Here, as we mentioned, um, it's the same word that God said all over creation. Tying God to the entire created order. Claiming it for his own, but for all eternity. And this steadfast love, this hesed love, we've talked about it every week, it's translated a lot of ways, steadfast love, covenant faithfulness, loving kindness. But I think my favorite translation is this, covenant love. It is the hesed love, hesed love that God reserves for his covenant people, for the people that he claims. John in his gospel tells us that God is love, and we know this is true, and In a way, God loves all of creation, all of his image bearers, Christian or non, by nature of common grace, not completely allowing the destruction of sin to go as far as it could. God is love, yes. But hesed, covenant love, is not for everyone. It is reserved for God's people. It's the special love that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's perhaps the biggest thing that separates Christians from the rest of the world is the hesed love that we have through the power of the Holy Spirit that connects us to Jesus Christ. And what we see in this verse is that we have it now, yes, but also forever. It endures forever. God will be faithful to that covenant love for generation after generation and it will continue into eternity until Jesus comes back. And I think this covenant love reserved for us is the driving force behind ascribing ultimate value to God. It's eternal. The love that God the Father has for you is unstoppable, never-ending, unchanging, and perfect. But for eternity. And this is what Paul means in Romans 8 when he says there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Often, um, in today's culture, we look for love. I can't remember if this is a movie or a song, but we look for it in all the wrong places, right? Um, We look for it in pornography, and it comes up lacking. We look for it in money and power, influence on social media, and we're never satisfied. We look for it in our spouses, in our kids, and they break under the weight of that misplaced love. We look for it in new relationships, and we know deep down That there's only one relationship that will satisfy what we're looking for. There's only one love that will satisfy. Here's my encouragement for each of you and for us as a Hope Chapel family this morning. As we're getting ready for the fall to start, as we're going back to school, as we're settling into work. My hope is that we really begin to embrace this Hesed love. The covenant love that Jesus Christ has for us in new ways, that we allow that love to define us and not the sins of our fathers and our fathers' fathers. I love that about the generation. It, we, the love of God can break generational sin. How amazing is that? That we begin to find our identity in the covenant love of Jesus Christ and not what the world offers Because that is what's going to last for eternity. To embrace the love spoken over us rather than what we speak over ourselves in our dark and tormented moments. For us to look to that covenant love when we are looking for love and everywhere else. See, Jesus lays claim to eternity. But it is His love that will bring us there. Um... We're going we're gonna to finish up here. Uh, I'm excited about this piece. Um, Taylor Swift uh, released an album on Friday. It's a banger. Lots of bangers on there, as always. Uh, but as I was listening to it over the weekend, I was shocked by one of the song titles. It's called False God. All right? This is the chorus. This is amazing. This is what she says. The theologian, T. Swift. She says, we might just get away with it. Religions... Religion is in your lips. Even if it's a false god, we'd still worship. We might just get away with it. The altar is my hips. Even if it's a false god, we'd still worship this love. Truly, theologian there, she gets it. She really does. She says, this relationship is our religion. It is this love in this relationship that we worship. And she says it's a false God. She knows. She knows it's not enough. She knows that worshiping that is a false God. And yet our king says, worship me, the true God. In every sphere of your life, worship me because I'm the true God. There you will find true covenant love. Jesus does lay claim to the whole earth and he does lay claim to you and he lays claim to eternity. That is a cause for worship. That is why we do what we do. So let us worship him. Amen.